interested in is expanding the focus of academics, the media, most you know, folks in the Western world away from the traditional focus on Russia versus the United States, Russia versus Western nations. Because it turns out that if you if you look closely, the majority of disinformation activity that's happening is happening outside of the West. It's happening in democracies or non-democracies where that disinformation can have really significant impact on people's lives. And it's it's often uh, between kind of long-standing episode 276 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, this is an interview with Alex Stamos, uh, who's currently an adjunct professor at uh, Stanford University's Freeman Spoley Center uh, and a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institution. Uh, uh, but uh, previous to that was the chief security officer at Facebook and CISO at uh, Yahoo. He's uh, uh, become much more vocal about uh, cybersecurity uh, policy as well as technology. Uh, and uh, this is the interview that I had hoped we would bring you in episode 275, uh, but Alex couldn't get on in time to uh, to make it part of 275. So uh, we're releasing it uh, midweek as a bonus episode. Uh, uh, so without further ado, here's Alex. So, Alex, the uh, Freeman Spoley Center is doing a series on uh, uh, online disinformation and elections, and it picked Taiwan for its first uh, uh, scene setter paper. How come? Yeah, so uh, I am the director of a new part of the Freeman Spoken Institute called the Stanford Internet Observatory. And our goal is to build the technologies and techniques necessary to study the impact of the internet on policy and society. One of the things we're interested in is expanding the focus of academics, the media, most you know, folks in the Western world away from the traditional focus on Russia versus the United States, Russia versus Western nations. Because it turns out that if you if you look closely, the majority of disinformation activity that's happening is happening outside of the West. It's happening in democracies or non-democracies where that disinformation can have really significant impact on people's lives. And it's it's often uh, between kind of long-standing implacable enemies. You know, so for example, Ar Iran and Saudi Arabia are in a constant both cyber and information operations battle. Uh, India and Pakistan are, are, are doing a lot of work. And so one of our goals was U to- UAE and Qatar. UAE and Qatar, exactly, yeah. Uh, which is not shocking, right? That if you have societies where there's some shared language, there's shared culture, it's actually a lot easier to do these kinds of operations. If you think about the work the Russians had to do in 2016, they had to go fill a building in St. Petersburg with a bunch of lowly paid English as a second language speakers who had the ability to you know, watch Netflix uh, and try to model off of House of Cards how they thought American politics was going to work. It's a lot easier if, say, you're the mainland Chinese and you have lots and lots of people that have the ability to speak and write in uh, the Taiwanese dialect um, to do operations there. And so one of the things we're going to be doing over uh, the next couple of years is choosing a handful of 
regions or countries that we think need to be studied and then opening up with our own kind of uh, summary of the research that's been done, of the media that's been done so far, and then building teams to go pay attention. And so we, we decided Taiwan, you know, in having an election in January of 2020 being, you know, of incredibly large interest uh, to the People's Republic of China and being something that isn't being paid attention to enough, I think, by the tech companies, by uh, observers in the West, that we thought this was a good place to start. So uh, there is a, a case to be made, which we'll get to later, that uh, uh, the tech companies booted the problem in 2018 and 2019 uh, uh, and got uh, got hosed by the Chinese uh, disinformation campaigns. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I, one thing I, I I would urge you to take a look at this is this is my pet theory is that the disinformation campaigns the information warfare campaigns that countries launch against other countries are largely the driven by what they do inside their borders to their own people these are mostly authoritarian countries and they right. uh, all have their own unique styles for controlling uh, the dialogue inside their country. And it's just natural that they would adopt the same style outside their borders. No, I think you're totally right. I mean, just looking back to Russia 2016, which really, well, I just made the argument that we over pivot on, on paying attention uh, to Russian activity. One of the reasons we do so is by far the best studied information operation campaign for which we have the most evidence. And one of the interesting pieces of evidence is the you know Internet Research Agency and its compatriots under Concord Management LLC. The the largest amount of output they did was actually in Russian, targeted at Russian speakers within Russia itself and within uh, former Soviet states. Uh, there was actually a big takedown when I was at Facebook. We took down this, this whole thing called the, the Federal uh, Action Network, um, which is a kind of, it looked like a pseudo official news network that also did weird things like publish kind of pro-tourism, you know, <laughs> posts on Facebook and stuff. It was, it was this really kind of bizarre mix of just general uh, pro-Putin news and then also, you know, things trying to get people to travel different parts of Russia. You know, we were able to technically tie all that activity to the activity they had done in the United States. Uh, and that body of work was much larger than the body of work in the United States, so uh, big, which makes big, total sense. Big, big Black Lives Matter rally in Minsk. Right now. Yeah. So obviously they were using different topics. Right. Uh, but it was the same people st sitting in the same building in St. Petersburg. Uh, and interesting enough, this is not content that I think this actually poses an interesting question for the tech companies. We took down Russia's domestic propaganda aimed at the domestic audience because they were tied to the activity they did in the United States. Effectively, that organization and everybody who worked for it was declared persona non grata on Facebook. And so we wiped out all of it. Like if you were just a normal person who worked there and you had an Instagram page in which you posted your wedding pictures, this is not theoretical. This is really what some of the people at the IRA did. That got nuked as well. But it actually is an interesting question of what responsibility do American tech companies have to choose what kind of propaganda is 
uh, propagated by countries against their own citizens. Like, to what extent should these companies, these mostly Californians, go insert themselves into domestic politics around the world? And I think that's actually kind of a hard ethical issue that that cuts a number of different ways. Yeah, and and I think the farther it gets from their own political preferences, the harder a time they have with it. I don't think they had much trouble deciding what was inauthentic activity when the Irish were having a referendum on abortion. They they were pretty hard on the anti-abortion forces. Uh, They don't like the Russians because they think the Russians gave us Trump. But um, China's a harder problem and it took a little longer than it probably should have for them to react to the uh, uh, Hong Kong disinformation campaigns and uh, and maybe also what happened in Taiwan uh, for a variety well, of reasons. Right. I mean, so I'm going to push back a little bit. You're, you're leaning on a little bit of a of a meme on the right uh, that yes. these companies are <laughs> like the, the Ireland campaign specifically was incredibly hard to try to figure out what to do there. In all of these cases, Google, Facebook, Twitter, they are acting in a supra legal manner, right? Like they are making decisions in places where no, there's no good legal guidance for them, right? right? Like it is unclear in Europe what it means to do foreign interference in a situation where everybody's European, but they're all different nationalities, right? right? Like the Brexit campaign, you can say there's foreign interference in Brexit. There is a ton of French and German money against Brexit, right? Because they, they're not stupid. They don't want their, you know, Airbus doesn't want uh, the EU falling apart. That's bad for business. And so, like, there's no good legal guidance in any of these countries about what is and is not allowed. Um, as for China, though, you're totally right. Like, it's really easy to point the fingers at the Russians, right? Russia has half the GDP of California, where I'm sitting right now. It is in some ways a failing petrochemical state that keeps on having to raise its retirement age. You know, they have significant internal problems. It is not economically important to any tech company. That is not true of the People's Republic of China, right? Um, It is different between companies. So Twitter and Facebook are blocked there, but Facebook at least sells ads to Chinese companies that are then shown outside. So Facebook is making money in China, even though Facebook has no employees there and is blocked there. Google makes a lot of money in China and is working really hard to insert themselves into the Chinese market. Twitter, I think, is the one that is kind of, they're blocked. They don't make money there. They don't really care about the Chinese at all. And and it is much harder, certainly, to point the finger at a country that can really ruin you. I think the people who are probably in the worst shape here is Apple. Now, from a disinformation perspective, they're generally not as relevant. But from a surveillance perspective, Apple's extremely relevant, as we've learned over the last couple of weeks. And not only do they make a lot of revenue there, but their entire supply line is in China. So, like, Apple is a company that if the Chinese decide to make them go away, they could. And, And I think the kind of integration of the Chinese into the American economy does give them a huge amount of leverage in these situations. So uh, let's let's go uh, to Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is an interesting country and, and as background, it's a, obviously an island uh, independent of the People's Republic of China off the coast of uh, China. It has a history of being almost the same as China. But in fact, in the last 125 years, they've only been ruled from China 
for five of them. They were uh, uh, a uh, Japanese colony uh, from 1895 to 1945. Then the Kuomintang, the uh, uh, Chinese nationalists, uh, took over both China and uh, Taiwan and then were kicked out of China by the communists, uh, fled to Taiwan, and more or less took the government over from people who weren't all that Chinese. They didn't. They, they weren't Han Chinese, many of them. They didn't uh, speak Mandarin. And so there's been this imported Chinese government, Han Chinese government, uh, uh, represented by the Kuomintang, which is one of the two big parties there. Uh, and for, for 40 years, it was a dictatorship. Uh, and then they gradually uh, eased up. And now there is a party that kind of represents the the more indigenous uh, pre-1945 population, uh, the DPP. And what's interesting is that the Kuomintang, which used to be deeply anti-communist and fought the, uh, the PRC at every turn, is now the pro-unification uh, party. I will, that's, that's too harsh. They're, they're, they're much more comfortable with close relationships with China, and China is much more uh, comfortable dealing with them than they are with this quasi-independence-minded, uh, uh, non-Han, non-Mandarin-speaking uh, uh, DPP. And so every, every election uh, where the DPP and the KMT go at it uh, is one where China has a big interest. Yeah, that's right. That's a, a pretty good summary. It, it is interesting that you know the KMT, Chiang Kai-shek's party, the people who threw themselves on communist bayonets uh, pre-1949, are now the people who are mainland curious, you might call them. And it is a, a fascinating background. Uh, you know, the, the people who are in Taiwan before 1949, a lot of them are ethnically Han Chinese, but they spoke some very specific languages, uh, Hoklo and Hakka, and have a very you know, different culture, different foods. Uh, and so it, it has been an island uh, that has had a, a very difficult internal history with the looming history, or I'm sorry, the looming presence of their big brothers on the mainland uh, constantly inserting itself. Um, and that is obviously way true pre-internet, but now in the internet age, the ability for the mainland to infect the conversation and to distort the conversation has significantly changed. And I think that's one of the reasons we're really interested in Taiwan is it's a place where there's this long kind of, there's this long history of propaganda, uh, but it's very traditional and old school. And it's, a, so it's a good place to try to understand how does, how do these things shift in the 21st century? So the KMT in the next presidential election in January is going to be running a guy named Han Kuo Yu, uh, who is a very modern sort of social media candidate who came out of nowhere and won in the south of the island, which is a little like Beto O'Rourke beating Ted Cruz in Texas. Uh, um, right. And uh, and there are there's a lot of suspicion around how this guy who was a nobody just before the campaign turned out to have such a vital and effective uh, online presence. Uh, what are the suspicions about uh, uh, Chinese um, influence on that campaign? So the to go back a bit, there's a, a well-documented capability in, in the People's Republic that is uh, generally referred to as the 50 Cent Army. So in contrast to 
the Russian example, where uh, the Russian activity was either being performed by people who work for GRU, um, the main intelligence directorate, so those are real intelligence professionals, or who were working for a variety of private companies where this is their full-time job. What the, the Chinese have the capability to do is to inscript hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of their own citizens who have a variety of different language skills to push their line around the world. And they do this by selectively dropping uh, the Great Firewall, the, the, the thing that normally keeps uh, Chinese citizens from participating in social media outside of their borders, um, dropping it and then providing instructions. For, for people who want to read a lot about the 50 Cent Army, the seminal paper is by a colleague of mine at Stanford, Jen Pan, and Gary Kane of Harvard, uh, who was her advisor at the time, that they wrote a number of years ago. I can send a link for you to put it in the show notes. Um, but it is, uh, it is fascinating if you look inside and, and look at the instructions and stuff of the, the incredible capability the Chinese have to deploy a huge number of voices. Now, that capability in English is extremely limited. That's one of the things we've learned over the last couple of weeks with the disinformation campaign in Hong Kong is that if you look at the material that Twitter and Facebook took down in Hong Kong in English, it is very obviously propaganda. The accounts that are pushing that propaganda are brand new. They don't have backstopped identities. They, they, they're just very, very fishy to anybody with any kind of internet history. And so there is a contrast here, but we should not allow the amateur nature of PRC propaganda in English to affect what we believe they can do in Taiwanese and in Cantonese um, and certainly in Mandarin. And so there is a a real concern here in that, uh, as you said, Han's presence was is significant online. He has lots and lots of people backing him out of nowhere, and there there is concern, although not a lot of direct evidence, that some of this was being pushed by the, the Chinese Communist Party, that these are people who are either in Taiwan or in the mainland pretending to be Chinese, uh, Taiwanese, uh, who you know helped bootstrap his support and helped him come out of nowhere. There's also a very explicit overt propaganda campaign on his behalf that you know the the media the traditional media in Taiwan is significantly influenced by the media in the PRC you know uh, with the cultural and language links obviously they watch lots of movies they watch uh, cable television that comes out of the PRC um, and so the because it is so obvious in the overt media that makes people believe that perhaps the 50 cent army has been deployed uh, in a uh, covert manner for the online media as well. But that's that is tricky. You're right. They'd have to drop the, the great firewall. Is that really something they want to do a lot of? Because uh, I could imagine saying, yeah, sure, I'll send a few of your stupid tweets as long as I get to read The New York Times online. Well, so they don't drop it completely, right? It's very selective. And this is exactly what they did. I mean, this is one of the reasons why what what I've heard from from friends at Twitter and Facebook, one of the reasons they were able to catch the Hong Kong activity is that if all of a sudden Chinese IP addresses work on your site, that's a pretty good ah, indication yeah, that this okay. is not authentic, right? <laughs> like, so why didn't they tell us that? Uh, well, they they said a little bit as much, but you're it, you know, we are in we, we are we're redoing the arguments that happened uh, inside of Facebook in 2017 are I'm sure happening again at all those companies about how to treat the Chinese, which effectively there's there's no good norm of what is the responsibility of a private company to do attribution of a government and what kind of data should they share. And so if you look at the three companies that are most relevant, the three Western companies, um, we can talk a little bit about 
the other social media sites that are 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 relevant here. But if you talk about the big three Western companies, Twitter, Facebook, Google, the Hong Kong protests were actually a, a fascinating microcosm of their communications issues. Twitter and Facebook moved proactively. They 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 both released. Um, blog posts with lots of details about the kinds of content, and they provided attribution. Twitter dumped out all of the content in a big zip file. So our people were able to go and grab the raw data from Twitter, and we loaded it up into our systems, and we have a bunch of analysts going through it and doing analysis right now. Facebook did not, and then Google did nothing, and then like a week and a half later, took some stuff down silently and had like a two-sentence acknowledgement that they had taken down a bunch of Chinese propaganda, but did no attribution and provided no data at all. And so yeah. you have three kind of options here. You know, Facebook is is really motivated to take this stuff down, but the one of the problems is no offense, but there's there's too many lawyers at Facebook, honestly. Um, <laughs> and I think they are over lawyering the decision of what do you do with content. So uh, this is I think an interesting thing for you to explore in the future with your podcast is there is a very significant tension between all of the pro-privacy moves people are making globally and the desire for academics and NGOs and outside researchers to have access to data to understand what's going on on social media. Um, and so, you know, releasing stored communications content, which is covered by the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the Stored Communications Act, in, in European context, GDPR, uh, in the Facebook contents uh, by now two FTC consent decrees, you know, trying to thread the needle to get data out is extremely hard. And so I think they are punting based upon the privacy law issues on releasing that data. And in the long run, that's really bad because it, it means that we can't look at the content. We can't look at whatever metadata they have and then make a determination of what the Chinese were doing. But that's that's not trending the right way because what keeps on happening is the most of the pressure on these companies is on the privacy side. It's not actually on the safety and integrity side. Um, and so as a result, they're reacting to kind of the legal and media pressure. Yeah, I, I, it, it seems to me it's the, the message for uh, democracy under attack is uh, uh, we've discovered that you really are under attack and we're going to tell you exactly as much about that attack as our business interests and our lawyers uh, dictate. Yes. No, that's 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 fair. Yes. And, you know, so this is something that I've actually been talking to folks in Congress with is from my perspective, what we need is we need a safe harbor for these companies to be able to provide their data, perhaps to a third party that can hold it to perhaps to some kind of shared intermediary of here is what we know about Chinese activity in this country. Here's all the content. And there needs to be a legal definition of what you're allowed to do with that data once it's out. Um, and then they need to be given protection first against U.S. law and then and then eventually against European law. One yeah. of the problems with European law is GDPR, who is a European data subject, is effectively anybody who's ever landed in a European airport. Um, and so like they are terrified of GDPR because the ability – there's absolutely no trust within the companies that the data protection authorities in 28 different nation states are going to – uh, be reasonable in their interpretation of law in these kinds of situations. <laughs> of course um, not. No. Well, certainly not at Facebook. Facebook is is carrying the can for uh, the illusion that uh, Trump won because of uh, Facebook ads and Cambridge Analytica and uh, any stick to beat them with uh, and the privacy laws are, are a big stick uh, is considered fair game. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. There won't, there won't be any fairness. I, I am tempted to say that uh, if you want immunity uh, – 
an FBI subpoena would do the trick. Uh, and maybe the FBI should be more active in subpoenaing information about, uh, you know, authentic information and demanding that instead of uh, kicking people off and just destroying the the uh, data that uh, the um, uh, social media companies handed over to the bureau. Yeah, actually, so interesting enough, the the best access to data that we have on the outside now about what happened in 2016 is because Facebook turned data over to Congress. That required a very interesting interpretation of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act that I think the company never wants to make again. Right. Um, but that is an act that Congress can obviously amend. I, I don't think you can actually do an FBI subpoena. It's gotta be a, a 2703D order, right? Um, for Got the it. kind of content that actually right, right. matters. Right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I, I like to say I'm, I'm effectively <laughs> a uh, Markov chain that's been trained off of the output of lawyers, right? Hey. So I can, I can say all the right words, but they're in the wrong order, just like a, a deep fake. Right? Yeah, you're, you're, um, you're next to Ben Wittes. You may be one of the better uh, um, amateur lawyers or non-lawyer lawyers uh, uh, in the public sphere. Well, let's let's uh, go back to Taiwan if we can. Just yeah. uh, we we really don't know what they've done so far. I was right. struck. I was struck by the fact that you said in this report that YouTube and Facebook and a Japanese social Social media uh, called Line are the three big social media platforms, and I thought, what the hell? What happened to WeChat? How come they haven't taken over the Taiwanese market? You'd ex have expected that's the first place they'd go after they conquered uh, the the Chinese market. Yeah, so it is fascinating that Line, a Japanese company, is doing much better in Taiwan than WeChat. That is actually, I think, a source of hope. So one of the things we try to say in this in our scene center is one of the interesting things here is that um, there is a, a very long history of Chinese propaganda in Taiwan. And so as a result, Taiwanese citizens are very well prepared for this, right? Uh -huh. They understand, you know, they are very smart and savvy and they understand the media environment they're living in. And so it, it is unclear to me exactly what the factors are, but a distrust of WeChat might be part of that. And I think that's actually great. I mean, from my perspective, I, we're actually gonna be writing more about WeChat uh, at the Internet Observatory. From my perspective, WeChat is one of the most powerful intelligence gathering mechanisms that the People's Republic of China has. Oh, it's um, gotta be great, it, yeah. It is, right, it is used by the entire Chinese diaspora uh, for communication back home, but also within all of the different parts of the diaspora. It provides no end-to-end -end encryption. It's encrypted on the wire. So if you're NSA or FBI, you can't see what's going on in WeChat, but all of the actual traffic is being routed and grepped back at, at, in Beijing. And so as a result, if you have uh, you know, Chinese speakers anywhere in the world, just by watching their conversations, there's a huge amount of intelligence gathering you can do. I think this is actually a significant problem inside Silicon Valley companies. We had, you know, over 1500 Chinese oh, nationals yes. working at Facebook. Now that's good, right? Like I am pro-immigration. My, I am the grandson of immigrants uh, who came to this country for a better life. And so I think the ability for the United States to recruit the first round draft pick out of the world's universities is a good thing. But Certainly in a situation then when you get those people, even if they are completely and totally committed to making a new life in America, that they're, they're not trying to do anything that is harmful for their new employer, you end up with tens of thousands of people 
in Silicon Valley working at these companies who are all on these WeChat groups that are for the employees, the Chinese speaking employees of these companies. Um, and so, you know, during some of our time, we did some infiltration of these groups and the amount of sensitive information in these groups is incredibly deep. And it's because these people are thinking, I'm just talking to other people who I work with. Sure. You know, this is this is my support group. I'm, I'm living in an alien country. I have to speak a different language all day. This is this is feels a little bit like home. But the flip side is the, the Ministry of State Security gets the ability to search through all of that content uh, in real time. Um, and, and that is not just true in Silicon Valley, that's true in every uh, company around the world. And so I think you know, uh, WeChat is actually needs to be considered a national security threat at the level of Huawei. Um, I understand why people are focused on Huawei, but a lot of the, from my perspective, the Huawei risk is actually manageable with really, if you deploy Huawei products in a smart manner, I think the WeChat risk is not manageable. Right, like as long as WeChat is a significant portion of use in anywhere in the world, then that country is now at risk of Chinese espionage. So uh, I used I used to say that if you uh, wanted to see European hypocrisy in action, which is, of course it's not hard to find, but uh, uh, the best would be is if Max Schrems would uh, uh, bring a lawsuit involving WeChat. Uh, right. uh, he ain't going to do it, and they ain't going to uh, uh, tolerate it because they can't take that to the conclusion that they've taken it with the United States. Uh, yeah, I just, I don't want to go down that path. I'm about, <laughs> like, I, I quit my job at Facebook, so I did, like, I was working on my first heart attack and my first stroke. Uh, I'm now in a much more chill environment. Let's not go down that path, because <laughs> okay. I, I will, you'll hear me have an aneurysm sitting right here. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, please, please don't. Uh, I, I, in terms of <laughs> in terms of the Taiwanese uh, skepticism, yeah. I, I, I will say that 20 years ago, uh, when uh, I first uh, uh, raised the issue of cybersecurity was brand new uh, at a, a Taiwanese uh, uh, a conference. Uh, the speaker on cybersecurity from Taiwan said, you know, we're a small, rocky country off the coast of China. We don't have a lot of natural resources, but I can say that we have an endless supply of Chinese zero days. <laughs> yes, I totally I, I expect that. I mean, as Americans, we need to remember, I mean, obviously, we should be backing Taiwan just as a as a moral and ethical position to be backing a democracy and the, the, the ability of the Taiwanese people to choose what government they have. But we also need to think about practically what their impact is on the United States. And the truth is, is that there's a, a lot of of really critical tech industries that used to be dominated by the United States that we have allowed to be exported. And and almost most of that has gone to China, the mainland China. The only exceptions are the things that are done in South Korea and Taiwan. Oh, the biggest chip, chip manufacturer in the world. Uh, yes, TMSC. Yes. Yeah, right, right. The the GPU on the computer I'm looking at right now is an NVIDIA GPU. It is made in Taiwan. It's designed in California. It is fabricated in Taiwan. The LCD screen I'm looking at was probably fabricated in South Korea. Um, the printed circuit boards and the computer I'm using right now either came from mainland China or came from Taiwan. None of these are things that you can make in the United States anymore. The, the value of Taiwan uh, to the PRC is more than just, you know, obviously propaganda and, and getting back control of an island that, as you pointed out, they only had control of for four or five years in its entire history. It's, it is, uh, you know, an incredibly important player in tech. Now, the benefit is that makes the Taiwanese very uh, sophisticated about uh, cyber information risk. Um, but, you know, if you end up with a president uh, who's pro mainland, uh, then it doesn't really matter uh, how 
you know, anti-mainland, the Taiwanese deep state is, uh, so to speak. Um, you know, you're, you're going to end up with, with a, a focus going that direction. So what uh, – to kind of bring it around to, uh, to a close. And then the last question is, what is it that you're going to be watching for? And what are you hoping the uh, big social media platforms will do to enable that, uh, uh, that watching to be effective? What we need from the companies is clearly there's a bunch of transparency work they need to be doing globally, right? We, you know, post Cambridge Analytica, the ability for academics to get data out of these companies has only gone down. It has not gone up. And uh, as a result, it is becoming very, very difficult for us to monitor at scale what is going on in a place like Taiwan. So we, we need the companies to continue down the path of working on data access abilities. Um, my colleague at Stanford Law, Nate Persilly, has been working on a project called Social Science One, where they're specifically trying to create the legal frameworks to allow for privacy-preserving access to data. Um, and we really need the companies to go down that path. Something specific we need in Taiwan is they need to launch their advertising transparency project there. None of the major, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, none of them have turned on advertising transparency in Taiwan. They're not enforcing the political ad rules there. It is almost too late. They need to do that immediately so that the same kind of enforcement of, you know, disallowing foreign advertising on politically important topics is happening and the same kind of transparency is there so we can see what kind of political ads are being run in Taiwan. And then what what we need to do in academia is, is, is figure out better ways of plugging in. So we're basically building a, a coalition between the Internet Observatory, which has the analysts and the, the technical nerds, with area studies uh, people. So there's a number of groups who have deep Chinese experience at Stanford. And so we're building a coalition to be monitoring the kinds of things that are going on, looking for, for weird behavior, reporting it to social media and to law enforcement where appropriate. The other issue that we need to work on is figure out a way to try to figure out what's going on online, uh, because line is, is completely opaque to all of us. And so we, we are working on a couple of different experiments of ways that we can try to monitor if any disinformation is being pushed there, mostly based upon uh, self-reporting by Taiwanese people. All right. Well, I, I'm looking forward. To, I, I assume there's going to be a report, probably not until February of uh, uh, 2020. Uh, uh, and you'll be doing reports on other uh, elections uh, leading up to November 2020 for us. Yeah, so you're going to see another scene setter from us in the next couple of weeks that's actually not in a democratic area. It's in a, a very different than Taiwan, a much poorer area of the world where we believe there's a bunch of disinformation going on that's having a real impact on people's lives. We will... We're going to try to publish anything that happens in Taiwan in real time. This is actually an interesting problem for academics is, you know, all of the incentive structure is to publish in the, you know, American Journal of Nobody Reads It, right, <laughs> uh, which is yes. a 18-month process that has no real-time impact on the, the, the sphere. And so we're looking to try to build a two-track publishing schedule that if we see something interesting going on, we can publish it within days as a white paper so that, you know, the media, the Taiwanese government, others can react. Act, uh, and then, you know, we can still allow our postdocs uh, and our grad students to then do peer-reviewed research that's published in a year or two. Um, so you'll, you'll be seeing that, and then, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully, uh, you know, you'll be seeing more about us in the 2020 election. The truth is, is the value add that we can add 
on the, the US 2020 election is is pretty specific. So we're, we're mostly not just looking for disinformation, but we're trying to explore some of the interesting ways that we think the election could be messed with. I, I, I have a new piece on Lawfare, which is my speculative fiction of uh, a almost worst case scenario. Yeah, that was pretty funny. So that's the kind I, of stuff. I, I read that. That was pretty funny and, and pretty scary because it felt kind of real uh, um, and you know uh, with each of each of our uh, major adversaries having their own candidate and trashing the other yeah I mean that's one of the things we gotta we gotta stop just focusing on Russia we got to remember that there's lots of US adversaries that have a specific desire and this kind of capability there, you know, if if we we have demonstrated that we're not really going to punish countries that that mess with us, you know, whether you think Russia got Trump elected or not, which is I think a very difficult open social science question, we still need to establish deterrence from that kind of behavior. And the fact that we haven't established deterrence means that the Chinese, India, uh, Vietnam, Iran, Saudi Arabia, all of these countries have huge investment in who the next U.S. president is. So the idea that everybody is going to sit on the sidelines and allow just the Russians to get involved, I think is silly. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you again when your uh, uh, next report comes out. Uh, Alex Stamos uh, uh, from the uh, uh, Freeman Spogli uh, Institute and the Hoover Institution. Uh, uh, thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you, sir. All right. My thanks to Alex uh, uh, and uh, to our listeners. I won't repeat all of the uh, things that uh, I usually say at the end of these uh, episodes. Uh, do remember that uh, the views that Alex and I express are the views that Alex and I hold uh, and nobody else, certainly not our institutions, uh, clients um, or family members. We'll be back again uh, next week with uh, episode 27. Seventy-seven. Uh, so looking forward to uh, hearing your comments on that uh, when it uh, releases early next week. <laughs> <laughs>